From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the British Airways breach and banks' reactions to it, Wells Fargo get investigated by the Department of Justice, and Fintech might be changing Africa's GDP. All this and much, much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. My name is Sarah Kachansky and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host David Breer. How are you today, David? Two podcasts in two days we've managed. I know, right? And what's going on? Like, clearly I've uh, got nothing going on in my life other than podcasts right now, which is really what I wanted as a child, really. So uh, screw you, career advisor. Um, No, having a great week. Lots and lots of stuff to do. A couple of things that are really sort of close to live as well. So super exciting. So watch this space in a couple of weeks. You can be sure we'll have them on the show. Indeed. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London, England. Before we get started, if you have any questions for us to answer about fintech finance or even our favourite pop culture references, do drop us an email at podcasts at 11FS.com or find us on social media. Sci-fi references appear to be the flavour of the week, so uh, if you have any requests, do let us know. Um, As always, we're not alone. David and I are joined in the room by some fantastic guests. We have Adam Dodds, CEO and founder at Free Trade. How are you today, Adam? I'm doing great, thanks. Thank you for coming on. We have Daniel Hegarty, CEO of Habito, who I stumbled over because like, he just told me I'd be pronouncing the name of his company wrong. Because you don't care about my feelings or my business. That's not true. We love you. That's Welcome yeah, back. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, you came all back. Call it what you want. Well, I love you too. <laughs> and uh, last but by no means least, we have Dr. Louise Beaumont, who um, is an independent consultant. She works with players across the industry to ensure disruption, and she is going to tell us much more about that later on. But how are you today, Louise? Very well. Thank you for having me here. Anytime. Um, So let's start the show. So our first story is one that I'm sure everybody has heard of this week. Uh, We have the BBC story here, but it's been on every news channel across the nation, um, that British Airways boss apologises for malicious data breach. So um, this is the story that British Airways said personal and financial details of customers making or changing bookings on two specific dates had been compromised. Around 380,000 transactions were affected, but the stolen data did not include travel or passport details. What it did include was name, email address, credit card number, expiration date, and the CVV code. So that's the three-digit code on the back of the card. Monzo reacted immediately uh, by identifying, updating customers, and solving their issue before many of them were even aware that they'd been affected. Monzo identified around 1,300 of its customers who were potentially affected and uh, instantly ordered replacement cards for them within a few hours of the airline's announcement. We actually spoke to Priyash Patel of Monzo's security team to find out more about how they did this, what the impact has been both on their customers and the bank itself. So uh, on the evening, we started seeing news reports coming through at around 7.30 p.m. from all the main, uh, the major news sites. And after looking at kind of the extent of what had gone on, we declared a security incident at around 8 p.m. Uh, and that's basically an internal procedure where we gather the right people around and we try and work out what our next steps will be. Uh, and then over the next few hours, we started looking at the impact, how many people were affected and how they were affected and decided what our response would be. Uh, and in the end, we decided that we wanted to replace the cards of anyone who had shopped uh, at BA, either online or via their mobile app. And then we would send them a message explaining what we had done. So we started doing that the same evening and we were done at around 11 p.m. having replaced everyone's cards and reached out to them to explain what had happened. So in our incident response procedures, we are always taking a great deal of care around how we communicate with customers and how we 
inform them of what's going on. So that was quite tightly integrated into the process. Yeah, so unfortunately, we weren't given a heads up for this incident. So as the news reports were coming in, we read up about what had happened and who might be affected. Um, and from that, we had gathered that it was uh, online purchases or via, or via the VA app as well. And so we used our internal uh, platform to work out which customers had shopped at uh, those merchants uh, and then gathered their card details so that we could get them replaced. So we replaced uh, just over 1,300 cards, uh, which has cost the company around £3,000 or just over £3,000. Overall, for us to kind of spend £3,000 to replace these cards uh, is quite small in comparison to the fraud that we could have seen, and it's probably worthwhile. We don't really know what could have happened if the fraud had taken place on the cards and the cost to the company could have been an order of magnitude larger, especially given the details which are stolen. So it's, it seems like the names, expiry dates, the security codes, the 16-digit card numbers had all been breached. Uh, so the likelihood of something happening which would, which would cost the company more than the £3,000 is quite high. And it hopefully it also means that customers don't have to uh, get in touch with us. They don't have to... Uh, call us up or talk to us through our in-up chat uh, because everything's already sorted for them by the time they wake up. So that to me is uh, a fascinating take that, I mean, they sprung into action so incredibly quickly. I, I have no idea if any of the larger banks could have detected it that quickly. Yeah, this one's interesting for me because I actually heard about this through social media, I think through Monzo's probably Twitter feed. And I'm a huge fan of Monzo. I'm a Monzo customer. But I didn't book my last BA flights with my Monzo card. I booked it with my Amex. And I got an email from Amex saying, don't worry, we know about this and you're protected like you always are on Amex. And that's the exact reason why I book anything mm-hmm. over whatever, a hundred pounds through my Amex or anything I can put on my Amex card. Cause I know that I'm protected with their excellent fraud protection, excellent insurance. Um, if I had to cancel my flight, I would get uh, that reimbursed, et cetera. Uh, so I, I don't know. It seems like a lot of huffing and puffing from uh, Monzo in the vein that they, you know, they don't spend any money on marketing. Right. But yeah, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. So um, I book at all my flights on Amex for exactly the same reason. And I, you know, I, for, to me, the interesting dichotomy here is between the, the new banks, the old banks and people like Amex. So it's that old adage, you should always book anything expensive on a credit card. And that's just been drummed into me from a very young age, particularly Amex, which is so hot on these things. So I, com- I completely agree with you that that was the response I would have expected. To me, I, I, it does feel somewhat overblown because once Monzo had done it, Santander did it, and I think a couple of other banks. And I was like, "Why? Why are you replacing all these cards?" You yeah, don't I bet know what the Revolut got right in there too, right? <laughs> well, Revolut doesn't let you have a card. Revolut only gives you kind of a virtual card that expires every five minutes. So yeah, you and know. They, they charge you five pounds to replace your card. I think that's how yeah, they. Uh, that's how they get around yeah. it. <laughs> Revolut, in all fairness, Revolut did did replace cards for free that had uh, well cards that may have been affected for free, but. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, I don't know how effective it is. I don't necessarily think this is a trend I want to be seeing banks doing. No, but I, I guess look, like they've made a business decision. Like this is good just because, you know, Amex are a really big company and they can deal with the fraud on the back end of it rather than actually stopping it at source. Then that doesn't necessarily make it sort of right, does it, to a certain degree? I, I guess they're in a situation where if you're a, an Amex customer, you don't have to now remember another four-digit number on the front of your, your card because that always changes whenever it changes, isn't it? But, you know, I think I think it's a good thing. I'm surprised. I can't imagine too many big banks that would have been 
hanging around at 11 p.m. to pick all this stuff up and then have everybody ready and, you know, pull together to take some action on it. So, you know, well done, Monzo, for, for kind of making a change and doing some things. And I guess it's interesting that Santander then followed suit. Would they have done it if Monzo hadn't have done it? Don't know. I doubt it. Yeah, call me a cynic, but uh, what was what was the what was that again? It was two days. Um, people booking on BA. Yeah. Um, how many customers does Monzo have? How many of their customers booked with their card on BA's? They said thirteen hundred. Uh, Per two days, I, they, they I said, don't know. Yeah, Call, yeah. They, and then all of those customers are inconvenienced by burning their cards, and they have to wait until it comes in the mail. I guess a couple of days. I guess that's why you carry two cards with you. <laughs> I think the bigger question here is one about data and ownership. And the data is the uh, the the person who creates the data is the person who owns the data. Other people are a custodian of that data. And the question for us in our increasingly open future is how we choose the people that we are going to gift the custodianship of our data and whether we are prepared to give them the custodianship of that data by using their service and when we are prepared to no longer allow them access to our data because they are careless with it in the way that BA has been careless. I mean, that's the interesting thing as well. It wasn't that data, uh, British Airways was hacked and the data was stolen. Somebody got into the live feed. That's how they got the CVV. So they were pulling it as it was coming in. I mean, that's terrifying to uh, me. So am I, am I making this up or did I dream it last night that actually it was a JavaScript uh, basically yeah, snip? I think actually that was- I heard that from Monzo too, where they, because they identified that uh, was it Ticketmaster thing back in the spring? And they think it was the same hacker group, right? That was interesting, I yeah. thought. Yeah. So essentially, they're just sitting, they're injecting JavaScript code on the front end, then skimming every, every piece of data that's going through. So really, what could BA have done at this point other than choose a different language to not have at the front end, right? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think to, to Louise's point, and actually to go back to that Revolut point that I was half joking about, but which is interesting, is this uh, this concept of virtual cards that burn. So you have a number that changes. You can choose to have a. So if you're making a big purchase, you make a purchase. You, you generate a, a virtual, you know, tokenization. Like, right. This is yeah. the premise of tokenization yeah, for a while, but, right? But, but for a consumer, it's the idea of having a different IBAN that you enter for different purchases. And um, Revolut has said it's cut fraud by X amount. I mean, that's a whole other question. We talk about Revolut and fraud, but um, the idea of that as like a as a, to sort of instead of handing over my data to anybody, it's actually a piece of data that doesn't matter. So I hand it over that one time and then I throw it away. Do you know what? I'm, I'm I'm always surprised that this hasn't caught on more, if I'm honest with you, because actually, like, there was a there was a company that Mastercard bought like years and years and years ago called Orbiscon, who kind of created that that tokenization capability and literally had like a um, a uh, toolbar plugin. Press this button, creates a single usage thing, goes into it, can only be used for it, and then actually, if that's interjected, it doesn't really matter, you know. You need a very specific demographic of user to be comfortable with doing that, and Revolut has that. Yeah. Uh, Mastercard does not. I mean, you know, you can. Imagine Imagine explaining to somebody who's used to, who's only just got on with the idea of pulling their card out and typing the number in. And I, you know, still, I still see websites that explain to me what a CVV code is, you know, because people don't understand that. Bizarrely though, I'd see that as a play for, whereas many people have been sort of going on about uh, Apple and Google and all these types of people, that would be one of the best plays for them because actually where you're at the point where you're actually in the operating system, then making that type of play. So I, would I press that button in the same way as I allow pretty much keychain to run my entire life? 
right now on my Mac, then absolutely I would. It would just be similar to why we all defaulted to using PayPal years ago was just because it was the easiest bloody thing to use. Uh, press a button, make it happen. Makes it easier for me. Did people default to PayPal at one point? Uh, <laughs> yes. We had this conversation because I've never used PayPal because I can't. I look at it and think I don't want to do that. Really? Yeah, we had this conversation in my old office, and actually, the, the the very very low PayPal users are actually quite a small subsection of people. It was really interesting. Sorry, Louis, I cut you off. And I can't remember what I was about to say, but it was brilliant. And it was something about David needing better dreams. Um, But there's a question here about, we're talking, we're focusing on the financial element here, but there's a lot of other data that was taken. And we we give the custodians of our data, uh, the people we allow to have access to our data in return for the service that we take. BA had a lot of other data that was hacked too, right? Um, and there is a big question there about where we choose, which brands we choose, choose to trust with our data over what period of time and when we rescind, when they burn that trust, when we rescind that service or when we just go, you know what, this is enough of a, I get enough value from the service that I'm going to take the risk on them and how people start to then trade on the trust with which we can place in them for the ser- for the care they take over our data. And the interesting point here is the GDPR point, which is they had to fess up to the breach. They couldn't sit on it and try and squash the news. They had to fess up to it. Then the question becomes, you were breached, now you pay. And do they cover the cost of the individuals whose data was lost or the companies that had to act in the way that Amex and Monzo and others, I'm sure, did in order to recompense those companies for having to deal with the BA issue? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the chairman came out from British Airways and said the first thing he said was, we'll compensate. Like the first thing he said was, we'll give you money back. I mean, British Airways has not had a good time of it lately. So I but imagine. Did he say who they were going to compensate? The, the customers he met. He didn't. Was, he didn't mean the people who had to bear the cost of it, like Monzo or Amex well, or others. I think his argument would be they didn't have to bear the cost of it. And I think, I think, I think the interesting thing is obviously from BA's perspective, A, they've lost customer trust at the, at the basis of it. B, they're having to endure all the aggressive virtue signaling of anybody who gets the opportunity to do so. But from my understanding, within GDPR, they could be fined up to 4% of revenues for that kind of breach, which is, so it's, I think it's very real. And I think that custodianship now comes with a, a much higher price tag for errors. So I think, I think obviously the Monzo stuff is, is kind of is curious, and I'm sure their comms team was just as responsive as their security team. But, um, but I think it's BA who are, who are facing a much kind of steeper hill. Main thing I'm surprised at is so many people still fly BA. Like, it's atrocious. I don't know why you do that to yourself, guys. Uh, that point. Really? Who do you fly? Oh, God. No, 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 no. Moving us on. Moving us on. So once again, we asked the general public for their thoughts on this. Uh, We asked whether they had been affected by the BA breach, whether they knew about it, and in fact, what steps they had taken to prevent further damage. Have you been affected by the uh, BA outage? I wasn't. No. Um, So my mum was, she's supposed to cancel all of her credit cards, but she still hasn't. Basically, they just got a hold of all of her information. Yes. But they said to cancel all the credit cards that are associated with her account. So she's a frequent flyer. So she's got like lots of different credit cards on there and all of that. I haven't, no. Yes. So we use Plio for our company uh, bank cards. And uh, I booked a flight with a Plio card and got an email after the breach saying that I needed a new card to be issued, which I've still not received because of the breach. So, yeah. I also saw they kept CV2 numbers in their database, which I believe is against PCI. So very naughty British Airways. I have, actually. Um, Last week, I bought actually half a dozen flights um, between London and various places. And then a few days later, got the the dreaded email from British Airways 
uh, telling me that um, I had been part of the, the breach and that I should contact my bank. Now, interestingly, the card that I bought all of the flights with was a British Airways American Express card. So I had a kind of interesting experience contacting uh, American Express on the telephone, having to wait 50 f- minutes to get through to a, a human being. And then when you get through to them, they didn't really seem that bothered. They were like, well, do you want a new card or not? Or, well, it's kind of up to you. I was like, yeah, just order me a new card, please. So, yeah, a bit of a weird one. Uh, the second story today, we go back to Wells Fargo because we haven't heard from them recently. Um, this story, uh, we actually got the story from payments.com, although the story itself was first reported in the Wall Street Journal, um, and it's that the Department of Justice is probing Wells Fargo's wholesale banking operations. So the Wall Street Journal reported on September the 6th that the Justice Department is investigating possible fraud committed at the company's wholesale banking unit. I'm quoting unnamed people, and I'm going to do that thing which I always do on the podcast, This is air quotes. People familiar with the matter. The probe follows revelations that employees improperly altered customer information, including adding information such as social security numbers to documents without those people's consent. So the point was that um, they were trying to beat a regulatory deadline for know your customer requirements. So they back added the information they should have asked for in the first place, um, allegedly. Uh, apparently, this occurred like late last year and into early 2018. Um, the documents were tied to the business banking group where those corporate clients have top lines in the range of about 5 to $20 million. So this is, this is quite a thing to play with. Um, the latest investigation joins the many, many other probes in the bank's banking practices. Thoughts? opinions feelings so the first thing that i heard when i saw this story the first thing i thought of because the time that we're in right now 10 years ago was the financial crisis and it seemed like i think wells fargo was one of the only brands that seemed to escape unscathed and warren buffett invested in it and whatever and in the last year or so i think there's been a number of scandals from uh, coming out of wells fargo and it just shows to me like they're all bad they're all rotten. There's no good bank, big bank. I think you might. I mean, just it, what it brings to mind for me is obviously the lending club issues of two years ago, where they were changing some dates on some loans so they can get them into could get them into one forward flow agreement or securitization rather than another. So I don't know if it's only the banks that engage in kind of convenient bookkeeping. It kind of it it, it just I suppose at the time it feels harmless, right? Well, we know their social security number, so why does it matter if we add it now or we asked for it three years ago? I, I imagine is the kind of the way they were thinking about it. But the people I feel absolutely worse for it was Fargo is their staff. They're like their actual front of house you know on the ground staff because a lot of this stuff has come quite clearly from pressure from higher up it's quite clearly not a couple of malicious actors at Wells Fargo who have gone oh we're going to tip X and stuff out it's quite clearly they feel they have to react to pressure in some way we see this in many many industries it's not just financial services where morals come adrift Think about the automotive industry. Think about emissions testing. Uh, nobody from on high ordered lower down or middle management to behave badly. Nobody issued an order to say add security numbers. But people knew that to do those things would make people further up the tree happy. And that is when you really have a breakdown of behavior and your morals come unstuck uh, and your principles fade away. Um, so I think this is a very human issue. I don't think it's a financial services exclusive issue. And I actually think there is much to learn from cross-fertilization from other sectors about how you manage across multiple layers in the organizations and you maintain 
uh, a moral core and you maintain the processes and the procedures which are honourable and which you expect of yourself and you expect of the companies that serve you. Completely agree with that. I think it's a, uh, this is humans. They'll find the easiest possible way to achieve a thing. And actually, in a lot of the instances that we've seen with Wells Fargo, it's come down to improper incentives being put in place with, with people. I would disagree that we don't, we don't know that that order didn't come from one high. Because the way yeah, that American companies I work, I would say, I would say that the order may well have gone, you will change every document and you will do it now. And I don't care what your ethics are. So I do agree there is a cultural point, but I do think knowing the way American banks work. So the incentivization is one problem. Like we're incentivized to open that many accounts, which is that big story from a few months ago. Mortgages. You know, yeah. Mortgages. But well, there's, there's current accounts. There's the current accounts people didn't exist. Was there a current account yeah, one as well? Yeah, yeah, oh, the current accounts that people exist. There's the mortgages. Um, but, you know, to, to a certain extent, that's like, well, we're going to incentivize you that way but then if you're if you're only incentivized by sales and the only way that you're paid a decent wage is by commission then of course you're going to feel pressure on this side i genuinely don't know that, that didn't come from on high here's a stack of papers you low paid person in the corner do it and do it now yeah i, I agree with you there too where you we've kind of assumed that these are the underlings uh, trying to sweep it under the rug to please the grandmasters um and sarah you said i know how american banks work is <laughs> British banks are all good, right? Uh, yeah, well, FBI, you know, <laughs> mis-selling. Um, I, you want to get me started on Australian banks because that's really my, my area of ire. But yes, yeah, sorry, I, I understand how banks work. Large banks. Yeah, large corporations. Global, evil multinational. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Next, you're going to be telling me that President Putin absolutely issued the order for those two guys to get on a plane, right? He, you're going to tell nothing, me that? Too? Nothing at no. all. Those no, civilians. But it's 123 meters high. You see, I didn't know that until this morning. So yeah, we now all know that. <laughs> um, I I kind of think we're, we're going to keep seeing these things come to light, and I don't really want to, but I also think that we would be foolish not to expect that we might see some more. I, I think the momentum around this now is that everybody's looking for everything, so there's going to be more and more and more. I think we should probably invest in a jingle for them because it's, uh, it's definitely going to be coming up a lot. Uh, well, I'm going to move on to a more positive story, I think, because that's that's just a little bit sad. So the next story is from the Financial Times. It's that the UK fintech sector is in a buoyant mood as valuations soar. Uh, so... Now, this comes from the FT, and the first sentence is interesting. It says, fintech and finance seemingly unaffected by Brexit as funding and valuations continue to rise. This is based on the back of Funding Circle, uh, the very big peer-to-peer lender. Um, it says unveiled plans. They didn't unveil plans. They've known this IPO was coming for about 18 months. Um, they finally gave the details of their plan to IPO this year. They want to raise £300 million, uh, and the expected valuation of the company at that point will be around £1.5 billion. We also saw British Bank Oak North valued at 1.8 billion uh, just a few weeks ago. In fact, um, as part of a 76 million pound funding round, the story also went on to mention that Britain can boast one of the biggest fintech deals of the past year, with the nine billion pound taker of World Pay by its US rival Vantiv. I will start off by saying I do think the valuations are high and it's good for the companies. I'm just not sure it's bucking the trend of Brexit would be would be the point at which I would. Um, I would debate the article's uh, author. Yeah, uh, I think I think that bit is a little bit of um, you know m- nonsense. That's just to get the word Brexit into the sentence, right? It doesn't need to be there. Um, and for those of us that have been there from the very beginning of fintech, this is just this was just inevitable as companies mature, big players emerge, uh, 
typically those that have got big, strong vanilla propositions? Because the the fintech world goes all the way from those people that are solving uh, at a disruption level to those people that are basically delivering point solutions for today's problems. Um, So you've got smaller players all the way through to much larger players, as you would expect. If you had to, if you had to guess what what the names would have been, it would have been these names going through for the valuations they're achieving. Um, it's just the maturation of the market, and it's in about the time frame that we thought it would be. So that, that, that there are no surprises here. This just proves wrong all of those people 10 years ago who were saying fintech is fly-by-night. It's just not going to be there in the next five minutes. It's just the story here is there's no story. This is just <laughs> yeah. the maturation of the market. I, I 100% agree with you. I actually went back and looked at my Twitter timeline and August last year, I predicted Funding Circle would announce an IPO and I said the first week of September. I think I was off by about six days or something and I was like, damn it. You were still wrong though, right? Well, yeah, I was, yes, all right, I was wrong. <laughs> is this the first uh, P2P IPO in London? I believe so. Because who, who was for Zopa? And then it was like Rate Funding Circle, yeah, they- Rate Setter. And I mean, Louise, I think you were deep into the P2P space at some point, right? Yeah. Like there were te- dozens and dozens of of companies that were trying to crowd into this new space. And we have one IPO, what, like a decade later? Mm. And that's about right. Because remember, if you think about the funding model um, that we've had over the last 10 years, you've got the crack cocaine of seed EIS. Uh, you've got the grown-up cocaine of EIS. And then you have the model called crowdfunding, which gives you much greater visibility and access to people with a, a spare tenor. It's right. sharing needles. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to, to, to extend that far beyond anybody needed to go there. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm now thinking about that, sharing needles. Thank you. The, the important point here is that that means that you're going to get a Cambrian explosion of startups that get winnowed out by, is the idea any good? And will people back them further up the tree? Now, the proportion of VC money that's available and the amount of crowdfunding money that was available at those larger uh, requirements just simply wasn't there. And so for a natural, you, there's a natural attrition. So we've had the Cranberry explosion. We're now getting the dieback associated with those ideas that don't go through. That's not a bad thing. That's just life. It's the maturation of the Okay. Natural selection, right? It's, uh, you know, a bunch of people kind of start and not everybody crosses the line. But um, it doesn't seem like a million years ago, though. I, I remember a bunch of my American friends kind of mocking the UK market for having no unicorns. And it seems like every other week now we've got one of them sort of maturing, as you say, to, to that sort of status. So, and they measure them in dollars. And that's like a different number. <laughs> that's true. Also, I also think the valuations are totally the wrong measures, particularly in the private debt raises. You know, the liquidation preferences and all the other kind of things that make these more like debt um, debt instruments really make that meaningless obviously a, a public IPO is, is is not the case um, that is not the case and I think these you know these businesses have done impressive things but I guess I would argue I don't think it is the ideas that we're now I think the ideas are common and copied almost instantaneously I think it's execution and the funding circle guys have done a great job at executing on that model yeah there's always and even if you might talk about a shortage of money there's still more money than really good ideas and even if you have a great idea it's absolutely about the execution it's the team and you can put together a great team and just apply an idea and the great team can execute I it's the thing I look for when I'm looking to put my money to work I'm looking for 
brilliant idea, absolutely. But I'm actually looking to put the team together that can really drive it over the line. No, it's often like second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth mover advantage yeah, in these yeah. markets. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to disagree with you guys because uh, I think Feel there's free. this mantra from David or whoever else. Everything is execution, 100% execution. L- nothing Gank else matters. Literally, the t-shirt over there, actually. Uh, like, the execution yeah. is everything. Oh, but okay. I, I just dropped three names in the P2P space, and we all agreed that there were dozens of other followers. Let's call them fast followers, late followers, whatever. But the first three are the ones that we all know the names of. Zopa's still around. Uh, I don't know when, you know, Lending Circle or whatever, Funding Circle. Um, I think there were maybe number three or four or whatever, but there is something to that as well uh, that gets totally discounted by some people's narrative, I think. Wouldn't, wouldn't we argue that your model is something of a fast follower to a, a US model? Uh, well, I don't think you could say it's a fast follower if we're not in the same market. Um, but maybe you could argue that uh, we're the first in the Ideas UK to travel. do it. Sorry? Ideas travel. They do. <laughs> As this capital. Well, uh, actually, to, if, if we're going to get onto that, um, I was on the Robinhood waitlist like four years ago. And uh, if Robinhood was in the UK, I wouldn't have started uh, free trade. I started free trade because it didn't exist and no one was doing it here. So someone had to do it. Uh, that was like two years ago and we're launching next week. Um, so did, did everyone get that launching so you, next week? So you've just, you've just reinforced my t-shirt slogan that execution is everything, right? It's no, it's not about the idea. It's about making it happen, right? Well, yeah. I mean, to, to carry on with the execution point, the next story is actually, it really ties into this. So it's that TransferWise has reported a profit for the second year in a row. Um, so TransferWise are one of those companies whose model has evolved over time. They've been around for a long time and their model has evolved in order to meet expectations, actually make the business work. Um, what I love about this is that TransferWise are not just rec- reporting profitability because because I hate that and they will never give me the numbers and it makes me so angry. I'm like, in what sense are you profitable? Because to me, operational profitability is not profitability. Well, this company's house, right? Well, that's it, exactly. But not everybody, there's a total other conversation about the companies that choose to exempt themselves from reporting on company's house. But TransferWise do report on company's house and their annual post-tax net profit is £6 million. And I'm like, that's what I want to see. That's an actual business model that is working. The firm says that £3 billion worth of transactions is moved around each month by its users. It says it has more than 4 million users at this point. Um, it's going to roll out its traveler-friendly borderless accounts product for the US later this year. But it, we must remember that already in the US and already doing very well over there. It's If we want to get the valuation, its valuation at the end of last year was £1.2 billion. So it is in the unicorn club. And the CEO is really interestingly, if we go back to the B word, it's all ties together so beautifully, that the CEO plans to move its European headquarters from London to somewhere in Europe by March 2019. Uh, the really interesting thing for me on top of all of this is so yes it's a unicorn yes they're actually making money it's a proper profit and it's a good chunky profit as well Um, they've cut prices for customers as a result so the second thing they did was turn their prices down because they're like well, we're making this much money we always said we were going to pass those savings on to you and they've done it so to me I'm, I'm very very pleased with all of the different elements of this story I think I think this is an interesting one because uh, if you really boil it down to what this is, it is a successful company doing a good job. And we should not be shocked. We should not be surprised. This should be our expectation. This isn't an oddity. It's how we would like things to be. It's how we'd like things to be. I'd say it's the first fintech we've seen do it. I completely agree with you that I'm very, very, I'm very, very pleased because actually what it does is prove it can happen because we haven't really seen that so, yet. So what is it, seven years, I think? Yeah, is that right? Been so, a while so seven years, they hit profitability, break even. Let's call it break even because, I'm sorry, six million for multi-billion dollar companies is not I was going to say that exact same thing. Um, 
But what what do I read from this story? It's that they're getting ready for their IPO. And they're probably going to IPO in London. That's my guess because we care a little bit more over here about profitability than over in the States. Um, Would you agree? Absolutely, well, it does seem that way. But but my my point to the six million is is more about that kind of if we're taking the fintech track here, if we're talking about so we're talking about like giant companies generally, then yes, it's not that much money for a multi billion dollar company. But for a company that has come out of this particular industry and that has has been seven years in the going and was the first company to try and do it this way. It's not so much that, yes, I think in the grand scheme of things, I completely agree that it's not that much money. But in the scheme of a fintech that's announced its profitability, this is actually something I believe, as opposed to all these companies who tell me, as I said, and there are a lot of them who go, well, we're operationally profitable. And I'm like, great. So how do you deal with the rest of the money you spend? <laughs> well, I guess it depends if you see profitability as the, the ultimate aim on a, on a unit basis. Certainly, I think you, you, if you're not making money on a customer basis, you're obviously in, in real trouble. Um, and I think even like 24 months ago, we were looking at TransferWise a little bit askance when we saw some of the numbers that were coming out of the business. So I think, I think, it's, I think it's tremendous what they've achieved. I think what's also interesting is it's taken them just long enough to achieve it for Revolut to arrive. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so it's, as soon as you get to profitability, the disruptor is disrupting you in any case. So it's interesting times. Yeah, but Revolut's not really disrupting their prices at all um they're offering free transfers for a certain amount but anytime you go over that threshold and you're not a premium customer the price is pretty damn similar and revolutes not actually running anything on their own rails whatever you want to call it uh so transfer wise yeah no i, I think that they actually have better pricing than revolut they do but they do have, but they have a lot of premium customers revolut so there are a lot of people paying that six pound 99 to subsidize those rates so i think um no i, I think to yeah, say you got re- a metal card don't you i certainly don't <laughs> although i'm uh, you know i think i think it's i think it's a f- like a fascinating growth story and you know i, I think i think it's going to be really interesting to see how transferwise um you know do more things you know they started with a really interesting beachhead and actually if they're looking for profitability now's the point where they need to start moving into uh, and the, i know they've talked about the current account that they want to do you know we've seen Klarna announce that they want to start moving into more of a full digital bank as well. So, you know, these companies who came into the market six or seven years ago with that beachhead doing something really well and now moving into other areas pretty, you know, pretty sort of relentlessly. So, yeah, are they, I mean, are they a product business or a distribution business? They've built an incredible distribution channel. Are they going to push other products down that? They, I think I've been very surprised it's taken this long to, to take that step, but maybe there's a lot to come. Well, let's wait and see. Um, maybe the next story gives a hint as well as to the potential next transferwises or funding circles of this world. Ooh, segue. Um, nice. Mm, well done. Uh, so done. the story comes from Finextra. Um, it's that the UK's Tech Nation organisation has picked 20 fintech programme members. Tech Nation has picked some uh, some 20 early stage startups to join its new fintech programme, promising to give them intensive backing to help grow their businesses and the country's fintech ecosystem. Uh, the new programme will see participants get the chance to work with and learn from some of the UK's top fintech entrepreneurs. The firms, those 20 firms cover the usual uh, suspects, regtech, AI, SME financing, open banking and cryptocurrencies. Some that's a third of them from our, are from outside of London, which is good to hear. Headquartered in places like Norwich, I'm Woo-hoo. looking at David, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Manchester, uh, around 40% of the 20 also have female founders or co-founders. So we spoke to Greg Michel, uh, the Tech Nation Fintech lead, to tell us more about their Fintech program, how they pick these companies and what happens next. So this program is the first of the uh, sector programs that Tech Nation uh, will launch. We have structured it in a way which is very much uh, unique to the ecosystem in the UK in the sense that it is based on the experience 
and the uh, outstanding uh, field knowledge that certain of the uh, entrepreneurs, the most famous entrepreneurs in the UK here in fintech have. And so what we want to create really is a, a community of fintech, a kind of third wave, wave of fintech, if you want, even if the maybe the term is bastardized, but basically something that only the UK can do. How can we bring these incredibly talented entrepreneurs together with the ones that are trying to achieve the same thing as them. So this program will be a vector of uh, knowledge transfer between those who have done it, those who are revered uh, throughout the world for having built great companies and the one, ones who are trying to uh, do it. It will be sessions led. So there will be eight sessions uh, concentrate around certain themes that are crucial for the building of companies at uh, bridge stage, which the companies are at. We will also bring the companies out to uh, the US um, and this will be an effort to basically show in a very raw light what it takes to make it out uh, in the US. I think one key thing to note about this program is it's actually not only talking the talk, but it's walking the walk in uh, making sure that the whole country speaks together and the different fintech ecosystems speak together. So basically what we are going to do is to take the cohort out to different uh, places in the country, to Manchester, to Leeds and to Edinburgh in order for the different ecosystems to speak to each other and also for the um, entrepreneurs in different parts of the country to just realize what else is happening in the country and for them to be able to uh, establish links which we hope will be uh, fruitful in the building of their company going forward. So when we set out to look for these 20 companies, we had a bunch of ideas in mind. The, the first one and the overarching one, which was great companies can spring up anywhere in the UK now. And this proved out to be very true in the sense that out of the 100 uh, companies that applied, about a third were located outside of London and the Southeast. And this is also represented in the final cohort. So in the final cohort of 20, we've got seven companies coming outside of London. Uh, so it's a wonderful uh, testament to the fact that indeed in the UK today, because of the uh, evolving and maturing nature of the, uh, of the ecosystem, great companies can spring up from Edinburgh, Bristol, Canterbury, or, or Manchester. So this is, uh, this is something we're, we're very proud about and I think the whole country should be proud about. The, the second thing is what the companies are, are doing. We wanted to center the program around B2B and B2B2C, just also to capture the evolution of fintech that just tends to go down the, the stack, the tech stack a little bit. Um, so we wanted to capture you know, leading uh, payment solutions, some that are more integrative, some that push you know, the boundaries of, of payments more than, you know, simple, simple app or, or removing friction. Um, we wanted to also promote financial inclusion and fair access to financial services. I think this is increasingly a topic and something that will uh, come again and again. I think as a fintech sector, we also have a duty to make sure that all customers uh, have access to finance. I think this is uh, incredibly exciting. Uh, we have services to SMEs, so both on the financial side and on digital tools. Uh, this is the lifeblood of the UK's economy, and we're um, incredibly excited to see um, how fintech can contribute to their uh, growth. Um, we have uh, companies that tackle problems posed by increasing regulation, so a lot of reg tech. Now, we know that this is a very big cost driver for a lot of financial institutions. And how can, uh, how can fintech companies tackle these problems? We have also uh, two companies uh, without which uh, no cohort could be um, complete. It is uh, applied uh, artificial intelligence uh, to augment uh, traders' decision-making and, and efficiency. Uh, so this is, uh, this is something that, that a lot of people will talk about, uh, RPA. 
uh, in the in the uh, future years. And then finally, uh, of course, uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Uh, we have one company is there looking at AML and KYC, KYC around uh, around these cryptocurrencies. Um, and I think this uh, will be uh, one of the drivers of adoption of these uh, of these cryptocurrencies or crypto assets in general. And I think uh, their contribution there will be uh, will be important and, and something that the whole country also should be part of. Is mind control the tech industry's greatest invention? That's one of the questions the Financial Times FT Weekend is currently asking. Each week, FT Weekend brings together an intelligent mix of news, compelling stories, and global lifestyle journalism. To read the article on mind control and a selection of other articles, visit ft.com forward slash open minds. Today, Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. We have a brand new report live on 11FS Pulse, which I just feel the need to tell everybody about. Um, Our latest is on user experience in finance and getting it right as opposed to wrong. Uh, It's being created by Pulse's James Safford and Clouston Mahon. Um, In the report, you'll find UX journeys from best-in-class examples, as well as insight from the likes of Revolut, Monzo, KBC Island, and more. It's um, very much in the same vein as my research reports, which you must all have read by now. Um, There's some videos, there's some sound bites. It's very interactive. We've got our amazing graphic designer, Simone, has done some beautiful GIFs, so they're not to call them GIFs, videos, yada, yada, yada. Terminology. They move and they're beautiful. It's a fantastic bit of reading and it's completely, completely free. So head on over to 11fspulse.com and click research to start reading. So our next story uh, comes from a somewhat familiar source. Um, it's that Habito has launched life insurance. Ooh. Uh, it's, I'm going to give you the details and then I'm just going to hand it over. I've got literally no notes on the page in front of me. So it's underwritten by AIG Life. The service aims to offer cover in as few as nine questions and without the need for any medical data. Um, it's going to use information already given to the provider during the mortgage application process. So, Daniel, I'm just going to sit back now. It's, it's on you. I'm ready. I'm going full advertorial. Are you ready? <laughs> Strap yourself in, everybody. <laughs> um, no, uh, so we are, we are tremendously excited about it. Um, life insurance does obviously go naturally hand in hand with mortgages. Um, more than half of all life insurance policies are sold at the point of getting a mortgage. Um, I don't know if you've been through it, but it is generally a pretty unpleasant process where a pushy mortgage broker at the point of maximum anxiety in your house purchase asks you what you're going to do when your partner dies, um, which is uh, generally a pretty, it's not, not ideal. Um, so what we've done is, so we partnered up, actually it's, uh, it's RGA, the, the big reinsurer who are, who are taking the risk and AIG who are the carrier in the UK um, to build a kind of, effectively we're trying to do the same thing we've done in mortgages, build something from the ground up that's super transparent, very simple, reuses all the data you've already put 
input in your mortgage application. You answer these nine questions, um, and then what we can provide is free life insurance for you for 90 days after the exchange on your house. And at that point, when you're through all of the horror of boxes and contracts and everything else, you can take a decision whether you want to use us uh, for your ongoing life insurance or if you want to use somebody else. So we're trying to take a kind of a softer and more humanistic approach to something that's completely fundamental to the protection of you and your family. It's, it's a really interesting, not a non-traditional move, I would say, because a lot of mortgage providers do offer life insurance. But I didn't actually know that until I started hosting. If you are interested uh, in the new companies disrupting both insurance and the technologies that um, are facilitating that, please do go and listen to our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider. That's my plug for the day, by the way. Um, <laughs> but for me, I didn't know that that's how a lot of people ended up with life insurance was when through buying a mortgage because, oh, sorry, but through getting a mortgage and buying a house because I am far too young and far too poor to be able to afford a house in London and I'm not that young. I'm coming out of the millennial so, bracket. So it's, it, they are different things. So like random brag, I launched the first life insurance straight through process in the UK when I was working at Aviva, which is kind of weird. Um, and there's two different types of life insurance, actually. So there's mortgage life insurance, and then there's term life insurance. So the the one that you've got from a mortgage perspective runs for the life of your mortgage. The one, The other one runs for your life. So, you know, if you die, it pays out, it covers your mortgage. The other one, it runs for as long as you do. Um, and actually, they're, they're quite distinct in terms of the product makeup, in terms of what they're doing, but they're both basically covering the eventual, eventuality that you snuff it. But it's really interesting. Like, how are you guys handling, um, I guess, from a GDPR perspective, in the, in the positioning of you're capturing information? Have you had to change the application form that you've got from a mortgage perspective to be in a situation where you're covering the usage of data to cover life insurance as well? Yes, so that's exactly right. So just to, to the point of, you know, life insurance plus mortgage like nobody wakes up thinking god i just got to get me some life insurance today today's the day and it's always driven by life events and normally you know the house purchase being the the largest asset that you're ever or the largest debt that you're ever going to take on it would make sense to insure it so no so what we i guess what we we went through the whole market. We went and spoke to the insurance brokers, the insurance carriers, the reinsurers to try and find a way that we could get comfortable selling this good product that has like historically not been sold in a very good way. Um, and what, you know, what we found was that it was actually the reinsurers who had the kind of the, uh, the most forward-looking approach to it and who were kind of recognized that they were being disintermediated in a bunch of different places. So what we, the way we kind of put it together was relatively early on in our kind of application process, we say, hey, listen, we're going to have to ask you for these extra distinct pieces of information. Um, and the, I guess the trade-off is you give us that information and then you get free life insurance. Um, but what, we, what we're not doing is asking for medical data and then later on mentioning the life insurance, if you see what I mean. So there's a kind of distinct portion of the, the journey. Um, but given, you know, compared to the traditional life insurance, application form, which I'm sure you, you know very well. I mean, it's a, it's a radically reduced and simpler process. Yeah, the, well, the risk is so much lower in this instance in terms of what you're doing. but And it makes such a massive amount of sense as well, because, you know, if your partner dies, the thing you don't want to next to be worrying about is being homeless. Like, so, you know, being in a situation where actually you're you're covered for these types of things makes absolute sense. For sure. And as you know, look, as a nation, I think the, the common perception is that we are overinsured. And I think that's probably right. Um, but life insurance around homeownership is just just, it is it is such a natural fit and an appropriate thing that it's hard to argue against. But I think we're usually overinsured for like travel, yeah, and, and iPads, it's like stuff yeah. that yeah, stuff that kind of may or may not matter type thing. If I break my iPad, it may not change the destiny of my child's life at some point type thing. Whereas if they're suddenly homeless because I snuff it, and my wife's like, well, uh, you know, like now what type thing? Then uh, and I should say snuff it for my for the international listeners <laughs> is me dying. So. 
I think that um, we are simultaneously massively overinsured and underinsured. It's just as individuals, we have no idea where the gaps and overlaps are. And surely there is a solution in the brewing somewhere that can look across my life and all of the different insurances I have and don't have to give me a sense of where I'm massively overinsured and where I'm massively underinsured to make sure that I, my family, me and mine are appropriately insured. Where's that service? There's, it's coming. It's from Broly. So Broly are doing that exact thing. They will look at all your insurance policies and they'll go, you're paying too much on that. You don't need that. There's levels need to come up and down. But it's incredibly, as you'd imagine, complicated to do and execute well. So um, as of now, they haven't yet launched that uh, that complete proposition because it's you have to you have you don't you don't want to mess it up right you don't want to be like oh well you should reduce the value of our life insurance it'll be fine and then in the scenarios we've just described so yes absolutely you're, you're right that is a need they're trying very very hard to get there um it's just it's quite complicated i, I think they've existed for a while they're called financial planners they have to pay their money lovely gentlemen they turn up they have fantastic Are they briefcases gentlemen? predominantly yeah very nice shoes <laughs> mostly mont blanc pens mm, and so i think what we're talking about there is trail commission and we're talking about trail commission which is the uh, output of that particular relationship and it's been done badly uh, it's been done without transparency, and it is absolutely in this day and age unacceptable. So I got to get me some. Is it that much different than what Habitat is doing? Trail commissions radically different, and it's, yeah. it's interesting you ask actually. So it's something that we thought about quite a lot, um, and particularly as a kind of growing business, you don't actually want a huge debt liability sitting in your balance sheet if everybody cancels their policies and everybody wants to claw back. Um, so it was something that we thought quite carefully about in terms of avoiding that i'm going to move us on to southeast asia i think we've talked enough about europe and america we're going to talk about southeast asia and then and then then we're going to go to africa um so the southeast asian story is from the business times and this is and i'm going to say some of these names wrong so i apologize in advance but grab go are the biggest winners in Southeast Asia's e-payment war, and that's according to a report from Morgan Stanley. So uh, the Morgan Stanley report says that e-payment players such as these ride-sharing apps, uh, Grab and Gojek, so the Southeast Asian version of Uber basically, are we the biggest winners um, when it comes to the e-payment market. In fact, didn't Grab actually buy Uber in Southeast Asia? They bought their Southeast Asian business, as far as I understand. So these are not tiny companies in any way, shape or form, are they? Well, no, they reckon that banks are going to lose, this is US dollars, between 13 billion and 15 well, 16 billion in value to non-bank operators by 2022. So they also reckon that telcos are really going to benefit in that part of the world. Um, the specifics of this particular market, because obviously every market is very different. Every country is very different and every continent is very different. Um, but when you look at the Asian, pa- ASEAN, as opposed to Asian, sorry, payments market, um, there's apparently, and this is from the report, an existential challenge for banks and huge opportunities for non-bank entrants. Um, because it's basically, it's not about the money that can be made from processing payments. It's also that thing we've seen in places like China where payments are a gateway to other financial services products. So you see the Alipays this world who start off by letting you pay and then they sell you a mortgage <laughs> and probably life insurance whilst they're at it. What's really interesting here as well is the business model in the, in the region where banks actually charge more for very, very simple transactions. 
So that provides a much greater opportunity for the non-bank players, such as telcos. Um, so basically, they, they charge you for making a, a, like a, a dip. Like, remember how corner shops used to charge you to use your debit card for to buy a pint of milk? That's where you pay a lot of money in Southeast Asia. Whereas if you do large volumes of transactions, your fees are drastically reduced. Yeah, I actually used Grab about two weeks ago for the first time. Opened up my um, Uber app in uh, Manila. And uh, it pushed me to download the Grab app. So that's probably why they bought it or whatever. And I wanted to use my credit card. And what did I have to do? I had to buy Grab dollars or something. It was like 20 pounds worth. And I think my uh, my cab ride to the air, uh, from the airport to my hotel was one pound or something ridiculous on, on fees. But I'm now, if I check my app, I think I have like 19 pounds worth of grab dollars or something like that. So it's, it seems to me like they're, they've got a different business model, kind of like how PayPal, I think I have like $200 in Canada on my, in my PayPal account still. They probably like taken it back with some terms and condition changes. Or I just think you I need to go know. back to Manila. Clearly that's what, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting. We um, spoke to Leslie Ann Vaughan, who has recently joined the company and she's very much an expert in this part of the world. And she was saying that a lot of that is to do with the fact that cash is still king. Um, and so what these companies are having to do is kind of what you've seen Uber do in places like Mexico is find other ways of enabling people to pay for those, for, for things like uh, grab journeys. So you had to get your credit card out and buy some grab dollars. But I think the average person in that city can go to like a kiosk and hand over some cash and get some grab dollars. So it's kind of innovation in that sense as well, which is presumably where a lot of this report has based its... Because I mean, uh, it used to be the, uh, the airtime vouchers were mm. off where it used to be the kind of de facto currency. And I remember I actually spent a little bit of time looking at Indonesia a few years ago. And one of the major problems there, particularly on the lending side, was I think I think 99% of the population of Indonesia have five or six surnames. Goodness um, me. So you have an incredible credit reference agency challenge in like locating, particularly without a solid address system, of locating and identifying any single consumer to underwrite them. So, yeah, cash is still king and, and credit is some distance. It's amazing, though. Uh, it sort of puts the perspective on the transfer-wise profit earlier on, doesn't it? That uh, these guys are, you know, 13.1 billion and 15.5 billion as opposed to the, what was it, a couple of million we were talking about earlier on? So uh, yeah, 3 billion that, that uh, transfer-wise is mm. moving. Yeah, I, I think, think, well I think the key point here is payments is ripe for disruption. It is a multi-layered mess right now with um, connection after connection after connection, each taking a cut and the least capable pay the most. The least financially capable are exploited the most. Um, disruption here is welcome. And as we know uh, from experience in India, it does wonders for your tax take if you get people to pay digitally as opposed to in cash. Yeah, absolutely. As a country, they can they can really benefit from it. Like, like you say, almost the I haven't even thought about that, but moving from that process of actually people having to cash in to get these, you know, it's creating the financial system, isn't it? Mm, and, and it's, I mean, I think as uh, somebody who spends a lot of their time reading these reports, one should always take reports from large banks with a pinch of salt. Um, but I think the points around the innovation that can be driven and the companies driving that innovation, it just uh, serves to highlight how specific markets will do specific things and there is often no way to like to transfer those across without understanding the cultural differences um so you know we can sit here and go well well uber did wonderfully in america and all right in europe but uh, when it comes to you know southeast asia that they, they didn't because they didn't necessarily understand those differences so it's it's 
insightful for me to understand how different people use money and how, what they're willing to do. Honestly, I'm, I'm as interested in how your trip to Manila was. Cause, uh... <laughs> how about my grab trip, though? Like, I, it was it really interesting for me because I was expecting to get into the cab and he would take me to my hotel. I got to go and see the whole of Manila, it seemed like. Uh, so I got in. There were like three other people already in the car. We went to like some like the Mall of Asia, dropped off one good dude and then wow. picked up another guy. Sure some area that seemed really sketchy. Yeah. So I, I guess Sounds that's like why it was a one pound journey. Wow. Um, okay. So yeah, they do it differently. And I guess to your point, Sarah, it's like localized, right? Yeah. Um, well, sticking with that, with that theme, uh, the next story is from CPI Financial. It's that fintech will contribute up to $150 billion to Africa's GDP by 2022. Um, the contribution of fintech to sub-Saharan Africa's economic output will increase by somewhere between $40 billion and $150 billion, according to uh, Financial Sector Deepening Africa, which is not a very easy name to say, um, but apparently they're a development finance organization funded largely by the UK. Most of that money um, right now or is, is already predicted to come out of mobile phone companies, which goes back to the conversation we were just having about those those airtime vouchers. Other areas are expected to increase over time as fintech develops to address the financial needs of people or making services more accessible. I think we all know about the mobile money success stories um, in, in various countries across Africa. Um, it would be really interesting to see, you know, what else develops uh, develops over there as as you know we just said um fintech tends to develop to meet a need so it will depend what other other needs can be met i have leslie Ann Vaughan again gave us lots of content here but let, let's see what the room has to say i like i i would prefer to just to trust leslie like okay, on the, on the basis well. of like actually you know founding Mpesa, like i'm kind of uh, i'm kind of with her on this one like in the notes on this one i'm like 88% of people using safaricom have used their mobile based money like damn that is like pretty that's impressive penetration. yeah it really really is that's uh, that sounded terrifying but yeah it, it really really is like being in a situation where you're actually got 88% of your 30 million customers using a, a, a product then that's going to take however much uh, disruption happens in that market that's going to take a hell of a lot of disruption to change that so yeah so one of the things that FSD Africa is looking at particularly is um, the use of data which we sort of touched on earlier in the show uh, so apparently it's working with some lenders, insurers and fintech companies in several countries across the sub-Saharan bracket to um, increase the use of data analytics to get better insight of customers and product development. So that's looking into which products come next. Leslie Ann actually sort of rebuffed that and said it's very hard to focus on data. They don't have PSD2 in in Africa and they don't have open banking in any specific country of Africa. So they uh, don't have sort of any constant mechanisms. Also, those telcos know how valuable that data is and they're holding on to it. Um, as, as much as there isn't, uh, there isn't consistent. The, so there isn't PSD two. Many of the banks down there are actually deploying it, and I know um, through some of the work that Leslie's been doing, actually with people like the uh, World Bank, then actually many African countries are looking to adopt very similar standards to. Uh, PSD2 and open banking to really sort of foster this change, um, not just for uh, what it means from a uh, features and functionality perspective, but actually to dramatically sort of democratize the way in which that development is actually done. So, you know, it is a it is a really interesting thing. I, I know Africa for me is a um, almost just a completely different game. I think how the response to things and and how much things can skyrocket. I don't think it's you know precedented in any other continent in the on the planet quite frankly 
I think it's one that we also have to caveat with as well. People go, Africa! And I said this last week, I know, and we had, um, when we were talking about the, uh, the British government's, um, the trade mission to Africa and we had the very excellent Anna Wallace from F- the FCA on to talk about uh, you know w- what she experienced when she was over there with the Prime Minister all of this is fascinating but we do we do have a tendency um, in this country and in the West generally and in fact in the US to go oh Africa and actually yeah, like it's a, like it's a single into- country it's not a continent into which you could fit every other continent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so whilst we can sit here and go, oh, well, that data used in this way in Africa or innovation used in that way in Africa, that's not actually how it's going to work. Um, we have previously discussed in more depth with Leslie Ann Vaughan on episode 245 uh, the impact of leapfrogging. Where Africa has gone straight to mobile payments without digital payment rails and that actually causes problems. So so that's kind of just what you were saying, David, that, that kind of that progression is somewhat hindered maybe by not having that underlying infrastructure was that what i said because that sounds way smarter than i think what i said so uh, i'll take that as a win you said that good awesome yeah, cool let's move on um our next story is from TechCrunch. um so a company called forethought has won TechCrunch's disrupt sf 2018 startup battlefield show or uh, competition i should say or rather um with a product called agatha answers I have many thoughts about why any AI proposition is named after a woman, but we'll get into that later, um, which is an AI engine designed to help customer service staff more efficiently and accurately answer customer questions. So um, it's basically an engine that indexes knowledge within an organization and proactively delivers it to employees in context. Um, it provides answers, but leaves the human agent to go with whatever answer they actually think is best. So it's one of those classic examples of AI supplementing humans rather than trying to replace them. Um, it's something that organizations like Cognizant, uh, so the big tech service providers, um, describe as augmented humanity. And they see this as a really key application area for AI. And they see it as much more valuable than any solution that might disaggregate humans. They see it as important to augment them, not just to replace them. So they call it uh, augmented humanity. Does it not sound a little bit like an expert system from the 80s? A little bit. Expert system from the, the 80s? 80s? Oh, I don't know. Oh, no. Oh, no. oh, no. I've just gone down the we're AI all... hole on my own. That's yeah. so embarrassing. And, and we're all denying we were there in the 80s. The, uh, well, yes. So the, an expert system just being effectively a, a decision tree of kind of contingent decisions with deterministic output. So no kind of inference, no stochastic components, just uh, you said this, so I'm going to say that. You mean not AI? Yeah, I mean, in a, a kind a, of like a rules based, dis- yeah. rules based algorithm. Yeah, that's, that's what that sounds a little bit like, which I can imagine being very useful in the hybridized customer service environment, but not necessarily AI. Yeah, because I was going to say, we use Intercom at Free Trade, as I'm sure a lot of startups do. I, you, you guys do, right? And it already happens right now. Uh, so a customer asks a question the so-called AI or whatever the hell you want to call it uh, gives a, a selection of answers that they think that might be the most uh, appropriate and you can select that as a human being. So I, I'm not seeing the innovation there. I have, I mean, I don't, I don't know how it works. I haven't actually seen it in operation. I do question how that's different. Some of these um, more kind of, if you like, intelligent, frequently asked question pages where it's like you start typing something and it's like, do you mean any of these things? Because if you mean any of these things, here's the shortcut. 
which it kind of feels a little bit like to me. It, it may be, I don't know, it may be that it has some extra elements of like natural language processing where it's like, you should know that this customer is getting increasingly agitated, in which case these are the things you should be doing or saying. But, but I again, don't know that's that. all out there. Yes, right. yeah. I, lo- I love the idea that um, it says that it provides the answers, but then leaves the human agent to deal with it. You know, actually do it. It's like, <laughs> look, you can take my advice or not, but it's up to you, buddy. Like, do whatever you want to. So let's go down this rabbit worrying about the whole sort of why is it called Agatha and not a dude's name then. Let's, uh, let's take that scab off right now. This particular piece of software has been named after Agatha Christie. Um, the idea is that uh, Agatha provides the answers. So Agatha Christie provides the answers to, to your questions crime-based questions although i don't know if it's particularly crime-based um that's that i understand i do understand that but i also what i really really dislike and and feel very strongly about is how many help systems are named after women and given female names so you could go down the you know there's 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 siri for a start (laughs) don't say the a1 it really fucks with people at home right (laughs) i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it there's alexa I can't even think of a sensible instruction to go with that. Um, but uh, they all, every, uh, the, every company that comes up with one of these says, oh, well, you know, there's a very good reason it's got a, a, this name because it's named after Agatha Christie or it's named after, you know, Alexa is like the, as far as I remember, it's like the middle initials. The, it's Amazon and they bought a company called Lex. So it's Amazon, Lex, Amazon. So it's uh. Alexa. But all of that doesn't did denote from the fact that every time you ask somebody for help, you're asking a woman to do something for you, asking a woman for help. Alex have worked in that case then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Alex would have worked on it. Alex is gender James? neutral. Our HR system's named Bob. Yeah, so is Alex. Your, your, your yeah. HR system is, but um, your HR system isn't. There's another one, Charlie. Uh, Charlie HR. Yeah, I mean, Charlie. I don't think it's all females and I don't know if that's like an insult, is it really? Uh, I well, this is this is. Um, I mean, Louise, you may have some other examples up of your head, um, but it is. It's actually there's an awful lot of work has gone into this, and how they tend to come pre-pro. Any of these systems tend to come pre-programmed with a female voice. Mm-hmm. You can change it. There's a, a an email personal assistant called Amy.ai, and you can have Amy.ai or Andrew.ai, but Amy.ai is the one that most people tend to use. Though I, I hear more people are using Andrew, but um, it is. I, I let, I'm sure Louise, you have some thoughts on this as well. But it is actually something that's been the um, subject of studies by uh, MIT and Harvard because it is a global trend that people tend to call systems that offer you help and do things for you after women's names. One of the interesting things, and I think you might want to explore this more in a, in a different podcast because uh, there's so much to cover in this space, is actually that systems, AI systems with female names, female voices get a lot more abuse than AI systems, assistants with male names and male voices. I think it is really interesting and a subject for further exploration in greater depth that even when you reduce something to technology, but you you give it a female name and you give it a female voice, that system attracts more abuse than systems with male names and male voices. And it is symptomatic of our society that that is a, a very real reality. It's pretty disturbing. So if you're a software engineer, knowing that data point, wouldn't you choose like a male name? Isn't that, doesn't that why, solve some problems? Why, doesn't, why can't it just have a gender neutral name? Why can't it be OK Google? What's wrong with what's wrong with OK? Oh, what's no. wrong with OK Amazon? We've just done it to the Google doing guys it. as well. Doing it. Mm. We are equal they've, opportunities. They've all watched 2001: <laughs> Space Odyssey. That's why. 
Yeah, it, it really is interesting. And I, and I definitely think we should come back to it because I, I kind of wonder if people are making the decision based on research that actually people are more susceptible to listen to a female voice than they would be a, a male voice. But that's me going, I'm trying to post-rationalize something that I don't really understand. I, I think it's worth exploring. Which is usually dangerous, right? Yeah, it's, so it's really I, worth exploring. I'd definitely say come back to it because it's a really interesting point. I do think it's worth, uh, you know, worth a question as well, just on that subject, that if Siri was male, would they have to have pre-programmed her with the responses of Siri, will you marry me? And other much, much ruder versions of that question, which they had to do. They had to go back and write in, you know, into the code responses because that's the, that's what happened. And the same with the A word, which I won't say again because everybody gets angry. Um, the same thing. They had to go back in and write responses for, for those kind of questions. Would that have happened if it was gender neutral or a man? I, I don't know, but part of me suspects not. On to something that is uh, in no way controversial. Uh, this is from BuzzFeed News. Um, this is what happened when John McAfee told his Twitter followers to harass the SEC. Oh, yes. uh, Adam's already rubbing his hands with glee. Uh, so John McAfee told his fans in June to email the chair of the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, um, to demand a debate between the two men. Uh, the emails poured in, apparently a whole 100 of them. Good Lord. Uh, I know. It's, uh, who knew that there were 100 people with that much time on their hands? Uh, now, thanks to a Freedom of Information request, BuzzFeed News is able to publish more than 90 of those emails. The best submissions are as follows. These are the best submissions. This is sort of selection. Um, debate John McAfee about ICO securities. They are not securities and he can educate you. Debate McAfee, you melt. Stop being, if I say anything rude, please stop me, because no, I won't know. We, we I really, just won't we know. Really won't. I mean, make is, me do is, this. Is melt derogatory? I don't know, probably. It sounds derogatory. I think it is. I yeah. like it. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, now we know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura's mum, for telling us that Danny Dyer says it a lot in EastEnders. Um, stop being such a chicken. You secretly know you'll lose a debate. That's why you're avoiding it. Etc. 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 It goes on. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Um, for ninety emails. Uh, sorry, Adam. Did you have a sensible point to make, or did you just no, want to no, contribute? No, no, no. I was just going to note that we're about fifteen months away from him eating his dick on national television. <laughs> it's been it's been a few weeks since somebody pulled that up, but yes, that is still going. I can't remember the web page off the top of my head, but I'm sure you can find it with some um, skilled googling. Do you know what? At some point, we'll release where's the... Where's Bitcoin right now, yeah, right? Um, well, definitely. We'll, well, at some point, we'll definitely release the 25-minute version of the discussion that we had about that topic in Amsterdam for the Fintech Insider Live at Money 2020. Uh, it's probably going to be one of those weird Christmas editions, I think, you know? Where are the other 10 emails? What's in the other 10 emails? Yeah. Well, that was Maybe so, they're the answers. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? I, I do worry about this a little bit because... John McAfee has become a bit of a ridiculed kind of character type thing. And I, I worry that actually we're almost kind of, um, he's becoming a bit of a kind of a, a comedy villain, but I, there's signs here that there's like actual mental problems, if I'm honest with you. Like I, I mental do worry. problems, legal problems in Belize. Like, yeah. I, have we dug into that already? We, we um, have done that on previous okay. shows. Um, feel free, <laughs> particularly on Blockchain Insider, if, if you're looking for more McAfee uh, dirt, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I am going to wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so, so much. We're ending to- on dirt. <laughs> That's pretty much where we usually end. Yeah, pretty much. I'll be honest with you. That seems like a good place. There's no Two further place. Two beers down for most people around the table. That's where we usually end. Um, 
thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, so where can people find out more about you? Do you have a Twitter handle, a website? If you're David, you're going to throw me some weird and wonderful link to a gaming platform that I will never have heard of. Um, I will start with Louise. You seem sensible. <laughs> oh, good Lord. I've, I've misled you entirely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Um, on Twitter, I'm Louise H. Beaumont. The H is important. Perfect. Daniel, how about you? Um, if you need some glorious mortgage action, head over to habito.com. And if you want to hear my musings on fintech and basketball, head over to at dh underscore habito on Twitter. Perfect. Adam, how about you? Go to the App Store, download free trade, live chat, ask for Adam. I'm there. Brilliant. And how about you, David? What you got for me this week? I'm definitely going PUBG again because, like, the amount of people that are now playing PUBG with me on a morning, like a daily basis, is getting to be fun. So, like, fintech PUBG, like David Breer, get me. Perfect. And as for me, you can find me as always on Twitter at Sarah Kajansky. So do join in the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And to really make our weeks, please, please leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.